right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here across the table, Mr. DJ Pie. Hello, how are you? Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, I'm wonderful. Happy Thanksgiving to you and to all the listeners out there. We are going to chat for a little bit here on uh, the American listeners. Some I golf. Mean, yeah, know. that's true. I not everybody. Not everybody's celebrating Thanksgiving, but we can. I guess we could wish them Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. Um, we're going to chat a little bit on the back half of this pod. Very lengthy conversation with David McClay Kidd. Not uh, American. We'll tease. <laughs> he celebrated at Thanksgiving. <laughs> Trust me. We chatted. We recorded this on Wednesday. Um, very apt conversation with what we have going on with Taurus Sauce. Hopefully you guys are catching that on our YouTube channel. We are leaving the Bannon Dunes Resort. I uh, have Bannon Crossings coming up. And then we play Tethero. And then we go up to Sylvie's Valley Ranch to wrap up the season. Um, and we just talk with David about a lot of Bannon, a lot of Tethero, a lot of really fun stuff. But some golf stuff happened uh, in the past three, four days or so. So DJ Pie, a little emergency meeting here to get together, talk match. Talk, An emergency conversation. Talk strategic alliances. Yeah, this is a strategic alliance. Well, You you, you said anyone could come to the table. I said, Tali, let's form a, strate- a strategic alliance and bang out this pod. I want the strategic alliance thing to just become a meme immediately. It, sounded a, it sounded a bit like Chappelle's show, a bit like... <laughs> 40 nations. <laughs> 40 nations. <laughs> like Ready who? Rolls. Who the fuck said that? <laughs> At CallawayGolf.com slash the match, you can learn a lot about, uh, about Callaway Golf and, and Stephen Curry's partnership. Callaway Japan said in PlayStations. <laughs> <laughs> about Callaway and Stephen Curry's partnership with Howard University Men's and Women's Golf Program. That was highlighted on the telecast on Friday. Uh, during that segment, we, I was watching it with my wife. She, the only thing she said nice about break. the golf the whole time. Yeah, thanks. The only thing she said about the whole broadcast was like, wow, that's really cool. It was awesome. They like did that a little minute segment. Was, yeah, the vignettes were really cool. But her the, the reaction pre-show. was yeah. like, oh, that really resonated with a yeah. very casual golf fan. You may have seen the a few close-ups of Stephen Curry's custom Truvis golf balls. Uh, on Callaway's Instagram and Twitter, you have a chance to win one of three of those golf balls signed by Stephen himself. Take a look at those on Callaway Golf Instagram and Twitter. Uh, they feature the logos for Stephen and Aisha Curry's Eat, Learn, Play Foundation. And on CallawayGolf.com slash the match is an opportunity to bid in an auction for custom Stephen Curry-inspired wedges with the auction benefiting a foundation. And then late-breaking news, Callaway staffer Christian Bezadenhout. Bezadenhout? I think that's right. Okay. In my head, I had it. And then as soon as I said it, I had no confidence. He got a win uh, on home soil, taking home the Alfred Dunhill Championship in South Africa with a bag of X-Forged Irons, Mac Daddy Wedges, Maverick Pro Hybrid, and an Odyssey Putter. Pretty impressive stuff. Impressive couple few days stretch there for our friends at Callaway Golf. But I do think it's Christian. Okay, God. Okay. So, I got, so I was 0 for 2. 0 for 2. Thank you very much. Um, they cancel each other out, though. Well, yeah, I should I should have the Happy Thanksgiving. I should Christian. have the, manipul- <laughs> <laughs> the manipulators. I should have their pronunciations <laughs> out there. No, of course I'm teasing. Of course I'm... Uh, just kidding. Let's talk match 3.0. This one kind of had a a little quiet buzz going into it. Very different than both versions one and two. Uh, Let's just open it. Couldn't be more broad. What did you think? What's your reaction? Well, let me start with the buzz. And and let me just say, you know, not only does Tiger Woods move the needle, Tiger Woods is the needle, (laughs) which is a phrase I made up many years ago. No, just kidding. I, I think that's probably the the part of the buzz, right? You like forgot it, to capitalize is. He <laughs> is the needle. No, I think that's probably when you, you know, I even suffered a little bit from that in until really like seeing that 
Stephen Curry was on the podcast. I was like, oh yeah, that match is going on. That's right. Okay. So I was in that boat. I, I have no judgment for anybody who wasn't super geeked for this one. But the more I thought about it, the more I was kind of like, you know, I, I remember distinctly sitting on the couch, you know, tuning into TNT, getting ready to watch and was kind of going through it in my head. And I'm like, all right, how do I really feel about what I'm about to watch here? And I was like, man, you know what? Stephen Curry's by all accounts, awesome. He's he's great to watch. Charles Barkley is one of the most delightful people on TV. Would watch him pretty much do anything. Uh, Peyton Manning, similar, similar. You know, some of his SNL sketches still still among my favorites <laughs> ever. Uh, and Phil is you know endlessly fascinating. I guess we'll say to to put it mildly. So without Tiger, I felt like they actually did a pretty good job piecing something together, and I enjoyed it. I don't know how you felt. I I wasn't you know. It was never going to be uh, number two, the one with Tom Brady and Tiger. But I felt like in the circumstances and these COVID times in, uh, you know, with all the, the restrictions and uh, the, just the changes they made, I, I thought they did a good job. I agree with pretty much all of that. Uh, there's a lot of individual stuff within it to react to. One, it is branded the match, uh, yet like there's no stakes in really involved. Like no one really cares who wins. I think it... I don't know. It, it started as a very serious the match, like for ten million bucks or nine million, I guess. This is what we're playing for, and that felt like the stakes. And now it's kind of turned into a skins game type entertainment product, which I am hundred percent on yeah, board. With. Definitely, I still am a little weird about the match branding. Well, I think, and I'll you know give us a little bit of credit here that I feel like we've even been saying this for two years, even when they did the Tiger and Phil one. Is when you say the match, like there's only one thing that hardcore golf fans really think about, and that's the you know. Ken Venturi, Cypress Point, the book, all of that stuff. Very much a match. Yeah. This was a, this was a match, and they're all a match. And yeah, I, I would agree. I think the the branding going forward needs a little uh, a little work, maybe. But I'm right there with you, and that I was kind of lulled into it going into it, and then as soon as I turned it on, and as soon as I heard players talking while like while playing golf, like my eyes just came right to the screen, and I'm yeah. like, I'm in. Like I'm in on this. I'm gonna watch this. It's entertaining. Phil just. All right, so I, I, we, you know, I think we said in the previous two versions of these, like you know, getting Phil to do one of these without Tiger, where he can kind of push people around a little bit, might be entertaining. Tiger might have been the governor for Phil because <laughs> he did not stop talking for five straight hours. I think Phil's also become deeply self-aware of the shtick, which is which is tough. The shtick used to have more mystique to it, and you'd only catch little snippets of like, oh, you know, it's actually not that hard of a shot. Yeah. And that was great because, you know, you didn't overdose on it. Now it's like, ah, okay, I don't know if I need it for five hours. <laughs> like, uh, that, that might be a little much. Like, I get, a lot of it was really entertaining, was awesome, but it also kind of, a lot, a lot of the reaction I read was kind of like, hey, Peyton and Curry really didn't bring much to the table. My argument to that would be like, Phil didn't really let anyone else come to the table. He kind of almost even muted Sir Charles for a while there, which is very difficult to do. I think it's also when you're playing kind of shitty golf, it's hard to, you know, really be yucking it up. <laughs> yeah, and there's a lot to react to in that terms. Uh, you know, a lot of reaction of, well, now we see the gap between a, a plus one and a tour player, blah, blah, blah. And I, I agree with a, a good – there is that gap is enormous, but also like – People were way, way, understandably pretty hard on Curry. He definitely did not have his best day. But, like, I'm going to get fired up at the people that just watch a few holes of someone and say, he's not this handicap. <laughs> and, like, what blows my mind about golf is that everyone, almost everyone, is so self-deprecating about their own game of, like, it's all. It's more funny to be, like, I'm a shitty golfer in golf oh, yeah. than, than it is to be, like, I'm great. But then as soon as someone else's handicap is on display at any point, 
Everyone gets, I would play Steph Curry for my <laughs> life. He is not a plus one. I don't give a shit. I could whoop his ass. I've never seen a plus one play that bad in my life. And I just am like, blo- like dumbfounded by these people that don't understand how freaking hard golf is and how hard it would be to play. Same tease as Phil Mickelson. I, w- I was going to say there, there's three things that, that really stick out to me. And if you're listening to this, I would, I would, uh, you know, implore you to look inward here on these three questions. One, when was the last time you played the same tees as, as Phil Mickelson? Two, when was the last time you putted everything out? Like truly putted everything out? And uh, three, when was the last time you played in front of millions and millions of people? Because those three things, I know we don't play in front of that many people, but the first couple times we played on camera, dude, it adds a whole other variable. And you can see it in all of our videos when we play with somebody for the first time who's playing in front of a camera, it's it's hard to do. Shout out to Danny Woodhead. That our, people were all over him yeah. for his handicap, and I'm like, dude, I... He qualified for the four ball. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's a good player, I promise. It's just, it's, it's, a different, uh, it's a different animal. In a way, Curry playing in a, what was the Web.com tour, now the Corn Ferry tour, playing in one of those events... Shooting 73, by the way. He shot 74, 74, 71, 86. Or 71, sorry, sorry. Um... And we'll get to that in a second. In a way that is easier, I'm going to use, I'm using air quotes as easier. It's a very different challenge. Like, of course, playing tournament golf is extremely, extremely challenging. However, a made for TV product, you're wearing a microphone, you are mic'd up, you have a person in your ear, you are there to entertain people at home. You are waiting for the cameras to get into place. You are taking. That's an underrated part of this, by the way. It really is. You got to wait and no, don't hit your shot yet. Don't hit your shot. Just stand around. Just wait, 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 wait. Okay, commercial break's over. Go ahead. <laughs> in normal professional golf, the cameras are are working around you and filming you. You wait on the cameras in a made-for-TV event like that. And like it, it is so different. And the fact that we didn't talk about penal desert golf is a nightmare. The worst kind of golf. For a plus one that is not hitting the ball very good right now. And it's just like, dude, you could... I don't know. I heard some of the dumbest stuff ever. <laughs> like, do people understand that... Uh, what? I guess I thought that we were going to have a much more built-in credibility thing with the fact that he shot he, he started his professional golf career shooting 74 74 71 in a in corn ferry events. Like I was a doubter of Steph going into those. And when that happened, I, I completely flipped to the other side totally. and I will ride or die for that. Yes, he shot 86 in that last round. Guess what happens to that 86 when you go enter your handicap? It gets thrown out. Let DJ explain this to you, how to manipulate the system. Like whatever Shout out this- to my man, Charles, who looks like he's been doing some manipulation of his own. <laughs> whatever this day, whatever he would have shot on this day at the, in this round of golf would have gotten thrown out if it wasn't alt shot or whatever. Like that's right. how a handicap works. It, a handicap is not a measure of your average score. It's your potential. And do I think Steph has plus one skill potential? Like he proved that. Yeah. We're throwing that. People have thrown that out five holes into it. And I know it's just sport, I guess, that they're kind of there for us to make fun of their game and and, and to, you know, mess around with it. But that really got me riled up of just like, holy, wait a second. Everyone watching this or talking about this knows golf, right? Like, you know it to a certain point of, you know, when somebody is truly faking a handicap. I get some people are saying like it's around the green technique. It doesn't look like a like a, you know, a plus player. But I'm like. Dude, I've seen some plus ones with some really weird around the green techniques. Like, Definitely. That's the reason why they're not plus six is like they figured out a way to get it around with the way that they do it. And I don't know. I, I'm, I'm fired up on this issue if you can't tell. <laughs> uh, a couple other things I, I, you know, big takeaways or whatever. Uh, one, I thought, you know, you, you mentioned a little bit kind of even in the, the ad read, but the 
Mission was great. I thought it was cool how they integrated a bunch of the the HBCU stuff. Before we get into the mission, though, also I thought we we're done not done talking about Steph's handicap, but alternate shot is freaking oh, hard. Course. I know yeah, it's yeah. modified no, it's alternate, hard. but like that's really really hard. And it turns out, so if you hit a bad one off the tee, you're playing your partner's ball. You got to step right up after just hitting a bad one, and it's a weird weird flow of you know competition. Anyways, continue. Oh, it's weird to uh, no real quick. It's weird to see. You, uh, so passionately defend uh, someone being called a, a fake plus one handicap. I That's interesting can that relate this is, to this issue. It's interesting that this is so close to your heart. Uh, well, some people are like, do like <laughs> you. you if and another are, thing, if you're plus one, you're at, you're shooting under par in half of your rounds. I was like, dude, I'm literally plus point nine right now. I have shot under par twice in my last twenty rounds. I have seventy nines, seventy eights, seventy sevens in there, like on repeat. Yeah, but if you shoot a couple low ones, like your handicap is going to be good, and that's so Aka. Yeah. One, I thought the mission was great. Two, and maybe this is tied to... I actually thought they could have steered into the mission even more. Than yeah. They did. I mean, it, it, they, they they worked it in, but I, I thought they were going to kind of... It's hard to work a storyline into it, but I think it, you know, at times almost felt like it was on the back burner for the entertainment factor, which I think is fair. They did but, a ton of it in the... I don't know if you watched any of the pre-show yeah. or not. They did a ton of it in there. It was it was basically mostly that, I think, uh, which was cool. And Peyton did a good job, you know, with his, his, his different hats, hats and, yeah. and working that stuff in, but... Uh, I thought that was cool, and and I don't want to speak out of both sides of my mouth because maybe this is tied to, you know, the fundraising, and maybe you know the longer you're on TV, the more money you can raise, that kind of stuff. But I don't think they need to be 18 holes. I mean, I think nine holes would be, and and I'm going to be totally yeah. candid. I checked out after nine holes and and bailed. So I assume Phil and Charles won, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I kind of missed the the back nine. In their defense, but I wouldn't say I was missing it. They Bob. didn't make it 18 holes because Chuck <laughs> oh, and true. Phil eviscerated them. But so like I I had so many legitimate laugh out loud moments like one because chuck chuck is truly one of the most gifted people at oh, just yeah. speaking he never has to think about what he is, is going to say not every line is gold but like he's ready to go with just banter back and forth and he's like hey get craig barry on the phone <laughs> get the law and order reruns ready like i was howling at yeah. that it was so well timed and then when the nba the tnt nba crew came on and Shaq is just like looking all like, of course, having the awkward angle on his face. Like, Chuck, you can't read words. How are you going to read greens? Like, that was perfect. I need those guys in person at the next one there to heckle Chuck. Totally. That was like the best part. And that's where I, I thought Brian Anderson does a great job. Uh, but I also don't know that it needs to, you know, I don't know that you really need that that much of like a traffic cop. Like, I, I almost think, you know, I've said this a bunch about PJ Tour Live and stuff like that. Just kind of let it go off the rails and almost feel a little bit more like a podcast at times, I think would be fun. So I think you could almost, I don't know if it would make sense to almost like swap out, you know, the talent throughout the thing, because it, it's, it's a long time to watch four people play golf. I feel like over, if you are going to do 18 holes, I almost think you need to do like they do on the telecast or like they do on the live streams or something, just kind of like rotate in different talent to make it feel a little more, uh, you know, dynamic. I thought they did a great job. I was nervous with the volume of announcers that they had. Uh, they did a let job, great job just letting the guys talk. Uh, Gary McCord on the first tee had me nervous. He was up there, you know, doing his little roast, doing his whole bit, and I, he like disappeared for several holes at a time, which I yeah. think was the right play. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't mind Gary McCord. I kind of like him. I do think that if he was, I agree. Like they couldn't work him in with everybody else. Like he almost kind of needs to be you know, the master of ceremonies type guy, if, if you're going to have him do that. 
Andre Iguodala was perfect, he was great. perfect yeah, he for was the awesome. role. He was not trying. He was the big key, and we've always talked about this: not trying to impersonate a golf announcer. Yeah, no, just and say it, what's on your mind. It was a nice mix. Trevor Immelman was there to do like, all right, if we win a little bit of golf talk about some of these shots, here's what we're going to talk about. He his role was neutralized by Phil just explaining every right. single shot possible. Um, you know, explaining the angle, like, kind of bullshit. Like, oh yeah, down the right, I'll have a backstop behind this, and blah blah blah. Phil, for owning the place, Phil can't read those greens at all. <laughs> or, or I Chuck like this puts, course so much, I bought it. Chuck puts some weird cut spin on his putts or whatever, which was, is possible. It's very possible, but it was funny. They would always, whenever Phil would be like, "It is moving one inch to the left," they would zoom in on the read, and it would not break. To the yeah, left. I think a lot of that's just faux confidence from Phil, also. Just yeah, kind of, and, and a lot of it, which we heard on the first hole, was probably him kind of psycho manipulating Chuck as well, where it he was like, worked. "Oh yeah, no." It, yeah, sorry, it was only 55, but I told you 75 because I didn't think you were going to get it over that bunker. <laughs> like, he might have been doing that on the putts, too. Who knows? Chuck was good. He was, yeah. He, and I, looking back, I didn't so, really. He was serviceable. I mean, for a 25 handicap, yeah. yeah, he had no hitches in the swing. He had some bad shots, of course, but, like, yeah. he laid back and hit seven irons when Phil's telling him to. You know, I didn't really do any handicap going into this, but, like, looking back, like, modified alt shot, one where Chuck is from teeing up from way up there. Right. And they don't have to use his tee shots. Was like, of course they're gonna win. Yeah, I didn't realize that going in that that there was you got the choice off the tee. Yeah, I thought it was gonna be Chuck putting Phil in horrible spots. That would have been didn't really way more interesting. It would have taken a lot longer. Yes, it would. And alternate shot should go faster in theory, but that course is a disaster. I, I think that course speaks to how important it is for a good golf course to you know contribute to good golf like. These dudes having no idea where the ball's landing. The cameraman couldn't keep up with where they were landing. You miss the fairway. You're in the in the junk. Like you're losing your ball. That's not fun golf. Like that place was insane. What, yeah. What What did you think of the course? Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't. Uh, it didn't provide a lot of you entertainment. Didn't you didn't. You're not going to buy it. The course was so average. I didn't buy it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I would say. I mean, some of the most. It did look like a golden tee game where they were putting oh, totally. some of those tee boxes. And yeah, the just, weird, the weird tees on like the tops of rocks that were, you know, basically like five by five, but perfect grass. Those were kind of strange. It, it was just looked like a very strange place. Yeah, I was yeah not not in on how it produced, uh, you know, what kind of golf that that produced, yeah. I don't think. But it was interesting. I, there was an interesting note. You can tell that Curry is still raw, of course, which I think is fair to be expecting. He's <laughs> currently playing in the NBA and you know, somewhat playing competitive golf on the side. But like the little segment where he stripes a, what he thought was a great drive and it goes in the water. And then he you know goes up and plays Peyton's ball and he hits it into the wrong. He flushes one, hits a long iron over the green into a bunker. And Phil just like teardrops one to the very front of the green. It was an easy up and down for Charles Barkley. <laughs> and, you know, they were in a bad spot in Which the bunker. a funny sentence. Right? But you could hear it. And this is the value of like getting players mic'd up is you hear Curry go through it as he gets up there, realizing like, oh, man, that's course knowledge right there. I would have never missed it there had I known how bad it was. I'm paraphrasing, but like, and then Phil leaves it right in front of the green. And like that, watching him kind of go through that and talk about it out loud was very much like totally. pretty cool. Like, oh, really no, cool awesome. to. You know, again, highlighting a difference between a plus one and a professional, like right there. And and Phil, I mean, I know I was kind of shitting on it earlier, but I am so in on all the Phil explanations. By the way, like I, I love. I'd hearing rather it. that than the other, like him yes. not talking. Of yeah, course, of course. But like but, we can still make fun of him. Like, for is, how yeah. much is it a little grating and a little over the top? 
of course, but also I was kind of glued to the TV whenever he was doing that stuff, especially the one, what was it? He was hitting uh, the big sand wedge from like 125 or whatever. He's yeah. talking about how he was changing the cut spin and <laughs> yada, 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 where he's going to land it, what it's going to do on the green. Like that's the kind of stuff where even if he's making it up and even if that's not, you know, what happens at all in the least, it's still fun to have context and see if it happens, yeah. you know, when it hits the ground. And he hit that ball perfectly pin high, which was yeah. insane. No, it was great. It was very much just super. I was rolling my eyes at all of that explanation. That was the one he dialed up the most. I'm yeah, like, yeah. Now I'm just going to say a bunch of words and just <laughs> blow their freaking minds. He is, we, he made this clear in the last one too. He is the partner that says partner way too much. Totally. That nobody likes that guy. Uh, <laughs> Bacon had a great tweet of like, you know, everyone he's ever played a pro-am with probably has either improved by four shots or quit the game yes, forever. That was that's very insightful. Uh, Porter had a great tweet that just said, whatever, we kind of already knew this, but we know for sure Phil's going to be an absolutely maniacal Ryder Cup <laughs> captain. Um, but no, he is, he is absolutely essential for these things. Uh, I, I think another pro to balance things out would be better. J, I mean, JT has to, I mean, I don't know why he hasn't been involved in one of these things yet. He would right. be perfect for it. Um, Curry really, it's cool to watch, you know, uh, I don't think he added a ton of like a ton dynamic, a, a great dynamic to it. If he's not going to play good golf, which you don't know whether or not he didn't add like a lot of entertainment, a lot of funniness to it. I don't think that was his purpose there. Of course, like promoting the champions for change and the, the fundraising that they're doing for HBCUs, that's his into it. But, um, and that, for that reason, I definitely understand the tie in, but I don't know. What do you, what do you think of how, how would you match these things up in the future? Yeah. I feel like people like Steph almost get caught in this kind of uncanny Valley where they're both expected to be really entertaining and really good at golf and, and expected to carry like a tour level performance, which is so much to ask. So, you know, so you're, you're almost kind of, I don't want to say setting him up for failure cause I don't think it was a failure. I thought it was, it was great, but like you said, you're you're just you're kind of almost putting all your eggs in one basket, assuming that he has to play well for it to be really compelling. Whereas Peyton's kind of like freed up, right? And Charles is totally freed up. And so, yeah, I, I would say easy fix, hindsight. You know, it'd be great to have a pro on each side to at least keep it. Make sure there's a ball in play. Make sure that you know it stays competitive and somebody can can rattle off some birdies at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, Production wise, there's not a whole lot I would change. I know it's it's difficult to have you know from uh, from booth to player conversations while they're driving carts and there's wind and there's connectivity issues of the radio freak RF, whatever it is, and all that stuff. I don't pretend to know how all that works, but I got that kind of live production has to be a complete nightmare to do. So hard. Like getting the, even a couple times they, and they did a good job of it. Like if two play, if the two teams are both having conversations at the same time, like you got to, whoever listened to that has to decide on the spot, oh, yeah. like who are you muting? And you might miss some, like Phil was clearly entertaining at one point and he had to be like, all right, I got to mute Phil for this one. Sorry. The best was when you can hear Phil on the other mics. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, production wise, it's, it's a lot. And I, I promise they're probably doing the best they can. Um, and I don't know. It was great. This I, is, I, it's perfect for the Friday after Thanksgiving. Like I really couldn't care about the golf, but they are steering into let's let, it was very much for the casual sports fan tuning into it and for that like go go nuts go uh, absolutely nuts i think the choice that comes up is almost like what people have said about snl for a long time where it's like you know if you didn't do it live like you could post produce it and you could make it so much better and it'd be the sketches could be so much more you know they could be yeah. more well written and they could be more highly produced and blah 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 and i think some of that is actually true as counterintuitive as that is to everything that we love about live golf i think if you 
almost like post-produced this and and ran it two days, three days, four days, whatever, after the fact, week after the fact, I think you would capture so much better audio. You'd get all the conversations better, but you'd also lose like, you know, the moment of Tom Brady splitting his pants or him holding out from the fairway. And so I think some of those kind of less than ideal production stuff, you just got to, you know, chalk up to, it's really, really hard to put those together. I think the uh, the the bet the gambling houses might have something to say. Well, and that, that, that was going to be the other big thing. It, I was gonna not say. being live, yeah, yeah, or it exactly. being live. I think that being very important. Yes. Uh, going forward, you want to talk uh, some PGA Tour European Tour announcing their strategic alliance. Yeah, where to start? I mean, uh, so this was announced on Black Friday. Uh, you know, curious, I guess I would say, uh, to say the least timing for that announcement maybe the news dump of all news dumps is this capital s capital a strategic alliance on the day after thanksgiving uh, but very scant on details basically you know we're going to help each other with you know scheduling and sponsorships and stuff like that and also the tour is uh, a, a couple big things i guess the tour is acquiring a part of European say, wait, tour media productions. What do you see? How does how is this not detailed enough for you? They're saying that the <laughs> two major tours are going to explore all facets of collaboration, working together on strategic commercial opportunities, including collaborating on global media rights in certain territories. What's vague about that? Yeah, to you? no, you're right. I, I take that back. Uh, it's pretty cut and dry as far as where this is going. But no, I think the the big takeaways as far as the only concrete few things that we know is like I was saying that the tour acquired. A little slice of the what is it European tour media productions mm-hmm. something like that uh, they're kind of in-house production network and then the other aspect is uh, Jay Monahan getting a seat on the European tour board of directors so I think at first blush it was kind of like whoa this smells like it must be PGL related and then uh, Amy Lynch shortly uh, confirmed that with his piece for golf week which basically spelled out you know in no uncertain terms that it sounded like the rain group was had made a pretty compelling pitch to the European tour who has been widely reported in some financial duress this this past year I think that's kind of a no-brainer that both tours have not had great financial years uh, trying to front both a massive you know safety program and also losing a bunch of events and and all of those things and so I think the the writing on the wall or the reading between the lines was that uh, the rain group the the private equity group that was hoping to uh, launch the PGL was going to come to them with a big, you know, pretty good looking deal to kind of a lifeboat uh, out of what they were going through. And it sounds like this was uh, the PJ Tours counter to that to make sure that that didn't happen. Does it? Yeah, a lot to take in here. Um, I think I think I speak for both of us when we say we don't want to be too reactionary to this because we don't know what this is going to look yeah, like. Yeah, totally. Very much in step with, obviously, there was a this going on. The, the reasoning for this going on is, is quite clear. And despite despite Keith Pelley being quite adamant that they're, they're not under financial duress and that they're you know, not in a poor financial position, uh, I think we can assume that there, that is a, a driving factor in this. The European tour had a move to make. Yeah, I think they probably weren't playing for, you know, a million euros uh, purses by choice, right? I, I don't think that was something they were intentionally doing. So, yeah, I don't think uh, they were in great shape. So, you know, I, the question I would ask is, I think a lot of people are, or nah, a couple of people that are following this closely have said, all right, now the PGL is dead. Like, is, is it in your mind? The only thing, and uh, Jeff Shackelford wrote a long piece uh, kind of pointing some, you know, what's missing from this uh, announcement. And 
I think he he quoted uh, Andy Johnson in there too, who who spelled it out pretty pretty well, which is you know the tour has basically doubled down on the same product twice here. You know what I mean? Like if if this you know predicts a merger down the road, or if this predicts some sort of you know coming together of the PJ Tour and, and the European Tour in a more serious way, which it you know you would think it would. There's nothing really that's changing about pro golf. It's just kind of doubling down on the same thing, right? And and what the PGL offers is something radically different, a different type of entertainment product, a different structure, a different, uh, a bunch of different stuff. And so I think that's kind of what we were saying about the PGL to start with is, you know, even if this first iteration doesn't work or yada, 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 you know, it kind of goes up in smoke. I, I would think once Tiger is out of the picture and, and things become even a little bit more stale on, you know, the pro golf landscape, uh, I would think this idea, even if it's not the PGL specifically, and it's not this investment group specifically, I, I would still think it, you know, it kind of fends this off for now maybe, but down the road, I'm not sure. You know, I don't think it's a death blow. From I, what I've not read in this is anything that would have changed the incentive of the players to jump ship to the PGL. You know, like I, this is this is a move made, you know, to merge the two tours essentially in a, in a way which we don't know how that's going to play out. But the the temptation, the reasons for the temptation, the reasons why top players would potentially leave this tour, the PGA Tour, for the PGL, doesn't seem to be eliminated here. Unless this means a huge influx of capital and huge prize changes and changes to the structure of how the tours pay out money. Which maybe it will. If, you know, maybe you can combine the FedEx Cup and the Rolex Series and all these things, and you can kind of make this slowly move towards this world tour, this world series, you know, whatever, and really make it a lot more top heavy. Maybe that addresses some of the financial quote unquote concerns of the top players that kind of open the door for the PGL to even start. But yeah, I, I'm kind of with you in that it doesn't, you know, it, it probably makes it a lot easier to set up a schedule, but I don't know that it totally addresses a lot of the other stuff. No, I mean, I think the top reasons why somebody would leave their current tour structure for the PGL will be one guaranteed money to a transformed um, schedule, meaning, you know, a true off season, you know, the exact weeks you're going to play. There's not setting of schedules. There's blah, blah, not blah, blah, blah. You can still play all the majors. Um, you know, you play 54 hole events that are made for TV products. You have a just entirely new atmosphere and you're making a lot more money and potential ownership stakes in teams. None of that is addressed by a strategic alliance, I don't think, unless 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 there's more details than we know yet or whatnot, but I, I don't know if that covers off on everything. Now, whatever only, was going on with the Rain Group and the European Tour, or you know, there were all kinds of talks about the European Tour becoming, you know, you know, swallowed up within the PGL or a feeder league for all this and all these rumors and all that stuff. That you blocked that in with this alliance. So I I don't know what that does for the chances of the PGL happening, but yeah, that's what I was gonna it can't say. help. No, right. That's what I was gonna say is they they basically block the infrastructure, right? And you don't have you can't inherit this series of tournaments and this series of, you know, all types of things that you would need to it, it would make it harder to get it off the ground, I would think. And as far as your your comment about the off season, this was from uh, Eamon's Golf Week story. Specifics of the partnership agreement between the tours remain vague, but multiple sources told Golf Week it's likely to eventually involve some marrying of schedules, most likely in the period of September to November. So, yeah, it kind of seems like it, it's drawing out this uh, 
quote unquote, you know, the the series is the the FedEx Cup series, the Rolex series. It seems like it's just going to make those more non-competitive, which as a golf fan, like maybe is possibly good. I don't I don't really know yet. I, I'm not sure uh, we have enough info. The one thing I was wondering, it, it, this reminds me of the Star Alliance, like within airlines. Like I'm, I'm wondering kind of if your status on one tour, <laughs> if your points can be cashed in for That's mileage on another one. I don't know if how, you know, race to Dubai and, and FedEx Cup points what, really translate. But if you've earned a bunch of FedEx is? points, you know, can you use that towards a Rolex or I don't know. Yeah, it's I hard to know. tell. I think these are all questions that are going to, you know, remain to be answered. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, all this, you know, conglomeration here. It's not good for the consumer. <laughs> we, and we know that. So before we roll in uh, our interview here with David McClay Kidd, I got to say a lot of people sending a lot of screenshots through DMs, Instagram, all that on Elijah Craig. If you follow me on Instagram, you would have seen, uh, I, I tried to make a real Elijah Craig old fashioned this past week. Didn't turn out great the first go around. I'm not going to lie. Uh, I accidentally used the barrel proof, which I don't think you should be using. Uh, was, my mouth was like numb from it. Uh, but I, I, the second time around, it was really, really good. The holiday season is upon us. If you're looking for something great to bring to your next holiday part, party, look no further than Elijah Craig's Small Batch Bourbon. The signature warm spice and subtle smoke flavor from Elijah Craig has earned a reputation for being one of the best small batch bourbons available named the best small batch bourbon at the San Francisco World Spirits competition. Uh, so whether your host is new to bourbon or an avid fan, you, can, you can't you can go wrong with a bottle of award-winning Elijah Craig. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Pick up a few, a few bottles today and share the greatness within with your family and friends. No Laying Up is brought to you by Elijah Craig, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, Bardstown, Kentucky. 47% alcohol by volume. Elijah Craig reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. Now, let's roll in Mr. David McClay Kid. So we talked a lot in the first go-around about how you got the job at Bandon, working with Mike, you know, beating out a lot of other architects, but we didn't do a, a lot of specifics, and I kind of want to get into the weeds a bit. Um, this past week was our, our airing of our Bandon Dunes episode. I've made it no secret that it's my favorite course at Bandon, and again, not just because you're sitting here with me. I've had that opinion for quite some time, but... Uh, I do kind of want to get in the weeds going a bit almost hole by hole. And we know that the 12th hole was the first hole built at Bandon. But I, I'm curious as to what was next from that. And did you know the 12th was the 12th hole at the time? And I want to lead that into kind of getting an understanding of how Bandon was routed. Yeah, I, I knew it was the 12th hole. Uh, the original layout, Mike loved the back nine. So 10 through 18 had been set from the previous year, and Mike was all about it. He had no problems with that. It was the front nine that he just couldn't get past, and the reason was the land parcel he had at that point was pretty tight. So I think you probably know the 11th hour story where Mike managed to acquire the land to the north, and the front nine on on my course, Bandon, changed uh, pretty dramatically. The the first, second, third, and fourth stayed the way they were, as did the ninth, and everything else changed. So five through eight, all those holes changed, but the back nine stayed where it was. So uh, when we came to build the course, for technical reasons, we needed to start at the lowest corner of the site because that's where all the drainage was running to. So we started in the lowest point, which was really 12, 15, and 16, and then we worked away from that. So the very last hole we built was probably, like, uh, if I remember rightly, three, you know, two or three, because uh, those holes were as high as possible and as far away from the ocean. So they were the 
the very driest corner as far from uh, the low point as possible. So that's often how you build a go- any golf course. If you want to get super nerdy, there are two things that usually drive the construction. Drainage. So you have to start where the pipe is exiting and work to where the pipe is entering. So from the lowest point to the highest point. And then the other driver is usually irrigation. If you're working somewhere where irrigation is an absolute necessity, the desert, for instance, you're going to start building from your irrigation pump and you're going to work away from it to the farthest point away because obviously the pipe is coming out of the uh, irrigation pump and it's moving away from it and you follow that when you're building the golf course so there's a, a nerdy insight into how you build a golf course so on that 12th hole specifically you know you touched on some of the reasons why it was the first hole but you know it's it's your testing hole you got to impress mike with this or you know you've told the story of that you know you were afraid of or he made it clear that he was going to fire you uh if if you didn't design a great hole what is there a template for that hole i i freaking love it and i want to talk about the bunker and the slopes and all of the things that go into how you designed holes along that coast specifically but uh did you have anything specific in mind when you came up with that one no i i don't remember having anything specific in my mind i mean it is funny to remember uh that uh, Mike basically told me, if you make pars and birdies, you can have the job, but you make a single bogey and I'll fire you. I mean, imagine if you had to go play a round of golf like that, knowing that your job was on the line the first time you make bogey. You've got to be pretty ballsy to to start the round off right away. But 12, I thought was pretty easy. I didn't think that I had to do a lot. I knew instinctively that I was competing with an unbelievable piece of landscape, the uh, the green site was completely there. It was caught between those two lumps, the the one that's close to the green on the right and then the one that's actually between 12 and 15 on the left. So those two hummocks were already there. They had, you know, gorse and wind bushes growing on them and, and beach grass and they were all gnarly from the wind. Uh, so those framing points were already there. Uh, and the high bench that the tees all sit on, that was already there. So I figured that the worst thing I could do was to overthink it. All I really needed to do was lay the uh, the green in there in an interesting fashion for a golf hole that probably for most people was, you know, a short iron. It was, you know, maybe it's seven iron, maybe it's nine iron, but it's not four iron. So the ball's coming in relatively high. Uh, the wind is going to be a huge factor. It's probably coming in off your right shoulder because you're playing in the summertime. Uh, and so I laid the green in from front right corner to back left corner uh, and wrapped that bunker and wrapped it around that little teeny pot bunker. I'd say the hole is probably harder in the wintertime when the wind comes out the south than it is in the summertime when it's coming out the north because you can play to the front right corner of the green and if the wind keeps pushing the ball uh, you end up farther down the green the really tough part is the back of that green actually falls away from you just a little bit so if you're playing for a pin over the bunker or left of the bunker it's incredibly hard to stop that ball Uh, you really need to uh, club down and hit really hard or if you're really really good hit the front part of that green and have the ball roll back there if i'm playing with a group i often tell them if that pin is center left uh, it's a sucker uh, and just play for the middle right of that green and then pop back to it 
man, you just covered off on like six different questions I had or six different <laughs> things I want to, I want to talk to you about because, you know, that shot is, it, it, you, you touched on it there and it just exemplifies what makes golf really fun in my mind, especially if that pin is back left, even, you know, even mid handicap golfers, when they grab a, cl- a short iron and they aim it directly at the flag and, a professional golfer would not play the shot that way. So, so I think that a lot of amateurs kind of struggle with the concept of when they have a short iron in hand that they need to aim it at a safe spot of the green. And everything is dictated, you know, around this teeny tiny pot bunker that I guarantee if you tried to hit an in it, you couldn't. Yet it's the only thing you're you're trying to avoid. And I don't know that that kind of shot. I think it just kind of exemplifies. Uh, the challenge that comes with Bandon, exactly what you're talking about. Uh, for a right-hander, the wind coming off your right, getting to those left pins is is just, it's so exhilarating. I don't have any other way to phrase it. I I mean, I, just to be a little controversial, Chris, uh, I would say I see a lot of professional golfers that don't get it too. Uh, they're so used to playing uh, relatively two-dimensional golf courses that have bent grass greens that are overwatered and soft. They, they get away with, hitting shots directly at the spot they want it to end up. Uh, And so they get to a place like Bandon or any of the British Isles courses uh, and it frustrates them. They they think that it's unfair that they throw the ball directly at the pin and it doesn't stop. I mean, I've had more than one professional golfer tell me about the 12th hole at Bandon and how it's not a good hole that they threw a perfect, you know, eight iron at that pin and they landed it, you know, six feet short and they rolled off the back. Uh, no amount of me trying to explain, well, that's not the way to play the hole uh, works. You know, they, they want to have a golf hole design that allows them to hit a very predictable shot in a very predictable way and have a very predictable result. And that is not linked golf. It's, it's not predictable. It's hell. It's hardly fair, uh, and you know it's you against uh, Mother Nature, and and she can play all sorts of tricks on you. Just like we're talking about on twelve, the the middle left pins are probably not good pins to go for most of the time. There are occasions if that wind's coming out of the south, uh, I may be more inclined to go for a pin that's middle left. Uh, because there's a chance that wind will hold that ball up and it will actually stop. Uh, it depends if I'm playing match play and where I am in the round. I mean, there's all sorts of factors to take into account, but just going for it is usually not the play on almost any hole on any course at Bandon. And I don't know, I guess, what what is the relationship between the 12th hole and maybe even more specifically the, the second shot into four? Because... They're right next to each other. The greens, you could, they're very similar shots. And again, the approach into four and the tee shot on 12 are maybe my two favorite shots at the course. So I enjoy kind of getting two cracks at it, but were you at all concerned with the the shots being too similar in any way? Or or did you have a vision for these two holes that we're going to play directly at the ocean? Well, I I don't see them as similar at all. I mean, I I don't know about you, but when I'm playing uh, a shot into 12, I'm probably playing an eight or nine iron. When I'm playing a shot into four, I could be playing a five or six iron. Occasionally, I might be a four iron. So that shot for me is completely different. The trajectory of the ball coming into four is a hell of a lot lower. Uh, that ball is not going to check. Uh, it's going to run. The green is way bigger. And the idea there is that 
uh, no matter where the ball is on that green, you are probably aiming short of it and right of it. And you're going to try and let that ball release and run to the pin. Even if the pin's at the very front of that green, I'm aiming, you know, five or six yards right of it and 10 yards short of it and uh, hoping that that ball is not going to check and it's going to hit the, the ground and release and run forward and left. And if the pin's all the way at the back of that green, you know, I might be taking, you know, one or two extra clubs and a half swing uh, and playing for the middle of the green, knowing that it's going to run to that back left corner. So I, I didn't for a moment think that uh, they were going to be similar shots other than the wind's coming off my right all summer long and the ball is going to want to move left. Yeah, I, I guess uh, where I was where I was probably coming from, we were getting that helping wind off the tee on four, and it was ending up with uh, with a shorter shot in. I don't remember what we what we hit in when we were just there, but I, I I just meant more along the lines of that wind coming off the right and making sure you're doing everything to make sure that ball doesn't go too far left. Uh, I, I find that challenge to be really, and that we had a back back left pin, very difficult. We had the USAM pins when we played, of and it it took everything in my power not to get lured in by that pin and just pretend there was one in the middle of that green because there was no good that was going to come out of going left. And as weird as it sounded, like hit a, I feel like I hit a great shot to 50 feet. And I feel like that would put a little bit of a smile on your face that, uh, that, uh, that I would think that way. There's nothing – the beauty of Lynx golf is the, the how the shots play out. You know, that shot you're talking about, I'm guessing you had – uh, a, a few desperate seconds of working out all the different uh, scenarios that may or may not play out in your head. You, you then picked one, uh, you play the shot, and then the ball trajectory you you see and you think, well, that looks like a pretty good trajectory. Well, I think I, I'm going to get to land it in the right spot. Then it lands and you think, okay, well, now I don't want it to bite. I want it to actually release. Okay, now I want it to move left. Okay, how far is it going to move left? And so all of this is playing out in front of you over 10, 20, even 30 seconds. All so much more exciting than playing a, a stock shot on an average Parkland golf course where you hit the shot and you think, okay, yeah, that's that should be close. And it's over in... The minute you see the ball leave the club face, you kind of already know that, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have a birdie putt. Man, you just described it. It's, my, it's actually my job, not your job, to actually describe these things, and you just <laughs> did it 10 times better than I did. But So as challenging as it was to work in this remote location, I feel like you were, you know, in talking to you, you were afforded at least some luxury that doesn't seem to exist much in the golf world, which was time. And, and you seem to intimate that you had time to explore the land, to learn the winds, to learn how it would play in different months. And I'm kind of fascinated to see, understand, I guess, how that impacted the final design. And and the second part being, how do you design a place to play in two very different wind directions? I always struggle to wrap my head around that. I think the time part is another one of the simple genius parts of Mike Kaiser's modus operandi. You know, he, he takes time and he gives the designers he works with time uh, to mull things over and chew the fat and figure out a thousand different scenarios and even fall in love with one idea and then let it permeate uh, and then figure out that really it's not that good an, an idea. I, I don't think I've ever had Mike kill, kill an idea. 
he just kind of blows a little chili on it and 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 ignores it for a while and then you think well maybe it's not such a good idea after all uh so i i i'd say mike is a big part of that that he doesn't have that developer mindset of okay you know we got to build this thing right away i mean we got to be uh, selling product in 6 months you know he that's not how he thinks he's like what does it take uh, to learn this land really well and for everyone to get really comfortable uh, with everybody else in the land and the ideas we have and then and then execute it in a timely manner but not in any kind of great rush you know when I built Mammoth Dunes uh, for Mike and Michael and Chris I guess you know it, we could have probably built that golf course in a single summer if we'd have been going at it really really hard uh, but the Kaisers themselves said, hey, you know, that's that seems like a lot of pressure. Let's take two summers. Well, two summers is, you know, probably three months longer than you really need. You know, you could rush it in one, but taking two is is really luxurious. So that's probably down to Mike. The next question you asked about how do you build a golf course with two prevailing winds that are 180 degrees apart i mean complete opposite summer and winter it is an interesting point that at bandon dunes a lot of visitors that come every single year always come the same time of year so there are a lot of folks that have only ever played bandon in a south wind or because they only come in the winter or they only ever play in a north wind because they're only ever there in the summer uh, and if you've played it in both uh, Bandon and all the other courses, but maybe Bandon more than any other, is a complete, completely different animal in those two winds. And you're right, I did have to think long and hard uh, about the holes that played north and south. If you take the 11th hole, for instance, the 11th hole plays slightly uphill, the tees are at the south, the green is at the north. So in the summertime, that hole you're playing dead into the wind. It's got a long, narrow green and you're hitting, you could be hitting driver three wood into that green in the summertime. And in the winter from the same tee, you can drive the green. I've done it more than once all the way to the green and bounced it on the green and rolled it off the back. And so the same hole, same tee, driver three wood to drivable. That's the kind of difference that you have uh, summer to winter. So how did I do it? Uh, with those greens, I tried to think about the the scale of the green, uh, how big it had to be given that uh, one one month you might be hitting wedge, the next month you might be hitting three wood, and then putting any vast range of tees. That 11th hole, although it's a par four on the card, the very back tee is 500 yards. Uh, so they could move that tee all the way back in the, in the wintertime and play it you know, as a driver mid iron, uh, but it would still it'd be 500 yards long. They they don't. You know, it's one of my little frustrations is in the winter time when the wind shifts to the south, they often move the tees around to accommodate it. Hence, you get to 11 and suddenly you realize it's drivable. Well, they uh, it, it seems like they're very intentional of not giving people a 67 or 6800 yard option. I'm imagining for. Uh, for pace of play reasons, but I, I, I'm guessing that is maybe a, a tad frustrating on the architecture side. Well, the good news is when I'm there with my buddies, I can look around to make sure the ranger's not looking and then walk my <laughs> group to the tee I want them to play from. 
<laughs> well, would you, I mean, so I'm get, I don't know what the percentage of rounds that's played in the summer is versus the winter, but it's got to be more just with daylight and the desire uh, for people to go. So would you say you designed it more so for a summer wind with that in mind? If, if you had a tiebreaker, if you had to pick the perfect day out there, you would want the wind to come out of the north? You know, I, that, that's a great question. I, I would love to tell you that 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 was in my psyche every moment of every day when I was building it. But I, the truth is that we built the golf course from August of 97 through June of 98, if I remember correctly. So we built it through the winter months. So even though intellectually, you know that the vast majority of rounds will be played in the summer with a north wind. Every day when you get to work, the wind's coming out the south. Every single day. It never blew out the north. Every single day, every decision I was making out on the golf course was when the wind was coming out of the south. So if I really had to be honest, I'd say there was a lot of influence out there from a south wind. That it was blowing out the south and I kept thinking... How am I going to get that ball on the green? What kind of shot am I going to have to play to get that ball on the green? Think of uh, number five. You know, I'm I'm building that golf hole and the wind's at my back as I'm as I'm building it. And I'm thinking, this isn't that hard. I, I can hit three woods up to the neck in the in the fairway, and then I can hit wedge onto that green. And it's a long, narrow green. Not that hard. But if you've played that hole in the summertime, it's an absolute beast. It's the hardest golf hole maybe on the entire resort because the wind comes out the north. So uh, I'd say I was heavily influenced by circumstance. And the circumstance was the wind blew out south all winter. I find that interesting because I I guess my, uh, not putting words in your mouth here, but the reason why I prefer Bandon over Pacific is I feel like it plays so much better in a north wind. I mean, we almost got blown off the golf course at Pacific, but that stretch, you know, where you're going, uh, what is it, you know, 10 send me into the wind, then 11 dead into it, 12 dead into it, 13 dead into it, 14, a short three dead down that you can't really even hold the green. Um, you know, made 17 coming back dead. And it just was very, very difficult, I thought. And I, I felt like, you know, when the wind's howling out of the north, I would much rather... It, of course, five is really hard at Bandon into the wind. Six is difficult. and But I find that to be uh, one of the reasons why... It, I feel I just feel like it flowed better. Um, well, you know, I seven and eight with those... Go ahead. I, I'll tell you what I did do. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time do, working on the, the routing for Bandon and thinking about the wind. You know, that part was intellectual, right? That part, I was sat at a, a, a dining table with a, a, a pencil and, a, and an eraser, and I was drawing golf holes. And the first thing I drew on the plan was, you know, the north-south wind, like you know, prevailing summer, prevailing winter. And I said to myself, how do I keep turning these golf holes around so that I'm not asking the player to continually battle the wind? You know, I, if I remember rightly, you know, Mike... Uh, and I talked about the fact that, you know, at St. Andrews, for instance, you know, you're battling the wind for nine holes, no matter what direction the wind comes from on the old course and many other classic links courses, you're battling it out and then it's with you coming back or vice versa. Uh, and and Mike felt that maybe that wasn't the, the best scenario and maybe we could work harder to try and keep twisting the wind around the player so that they they had different options it certainly was in my mind 
uh, to do that, to try and keep the golf holes moving and not play, uh, you know, three par fours into the wind type of thing, you know, which is why, you know, five is a par four, but six is a par three and then seven turns perpendicular to the wind, no matter what. So does eight, uh, nine quarters the wind, so does 10, you know, so you're, I was trying my hardest to keep the wind moving around. Yeah, no, that's that's something I definitely kind of stuck out to me. I'm not sure I would have noticed that on my my first go around, but you know, playing it in different conditions and different winds and stuff like that, it it uh, was definitely of note. You mentioned kind of the eleventh hour land purchase, and I didn't want to um, you know breeze by that in case some of the listeners weren't familiar with with what happened. And I, I, I'm curious if you could kind of help us visually paint what what the front nine looked like prior to that purchase, and then what the changes were to it afterwards. Well, the back nine was uh, was easy, right? I mean, I wanted to finish the course along the water's edge. You know, I'm a Scotsman. We play match play. I wanted the big dramatic holes, 15 through 17, to decide match play. So that part was easy. Mike got it. He loved it. But the front nine was kind of squeezed in. To the south, you had the back nine. And to the west, you only had a little bit of coastline. You basically had what is today four green and halfway up the fifth fairway. Uh, and so number five didn't play along the water. It started to cut back inland. And the whole front nine only touched the water once. The, the fourth green and the fifth tees were on the water. Everything else was, was uh, back from the water to the point that the sixth and eleventh green on my original layout were a double green. Can you imagine that? So the existing eleventh was actually a double green with the sixth on the front nine. That's hard to figure out for for those that know the resort well. Uh, and Mike just didn't like the front nine. He, it didn't have enough waterfront. The holes were a bit cramped. It didn't have the drama he was looking for. And we went round and round for many months, maybe even a year or more. And I kept saying to Mike that the problem golf design, the problem is the availability of land. If you look at the plan I've drawn, I have golf on every single piece of the parcel you own uh, that from the property boundary to the north, uh, Cut Creek to the south, the primary dune to the east and the ocean to the west. Uh, that whole parcel was filled with golf. And so Mike kept scratching his head wondering how he could resolve uh, this impasse where he wasn't happy with the front nine. And the neighboring landowner, a guy called Schumann, abruptly went into bankruptcy. And the land that is now everything except the sheep ranch became available. And Mike was able to purchase it. And with that purchase, uh, I said to Mike, okay, you know, this changes everything. Everything changes now. Given the new land, uh, I would want to start from completely scratch. I mean, there's no point putting the clubhouse where we're planning. Uh, what we should do is move the clubhouse north to maybe where Pacific's clubhouse is and replan Band and Dunes from a northern clubhouse because that way you'll get maybe one more or even two more courses to get in and out of a single clubhouse spot. That seems perfectly logical to someone who's studied architecture, right? To find one clubhouse and, and make it service more than one golf course. Uh, but not to Mike. Uh, he said, no, 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 no. I, I like the, the back nine just the way you have it. I'm comfortable with where the clubhouse is. I just want you to redo the front nine. And no amount of me saying, well, 
you know, that doesn't make any sense. We should go back to master planning the whole resort, you know, in Mike's infinite wisdom. He said, no, we're, we're just going to stay where we are and, and just refigure the front nine. So I went back to the fourth green. One, two, three and four were still pretty good. And I turned five and six up the coast, cut back on seven and eight and played the original ninth. That was it. The backstory might be that by that point, Mike had tagged Tom Doak to do the second course. And Tom knew that the Schumann land was now available. But Mike had given me a kind of permission to puncture into that new piece of land. So I think in Tom's read, I kind of stole that land from his possibilities. I'd have stolen more if I could have gone farther north. Uh, that <laughs> land was was really, really good. I mean, I, I'd been looking over that fence two or three years at that point, and I knew how good that land was that Tom eventually got to build Pacific on. Yeah, no, it's it's hard to look at the overheads now, which I'm doing, and picture everything fitting into that original original piece of land without some serious compromises. So I think it it uh, it does it makes sense. I, I'm curious as to you could talk about. Um, I forget where I've read this, and I remember I'm thinking of the fifth hole at Royal Portrush um, as as a lesson in this, in terms of the value in having a hole that plays directly at the ocean, both in terms of dramatics and how much oceanfront real estate uh, a hole like that takes up, yet how much thrill people still get out of playing it. And the fourth and the twelfth are both great examples of that. Was that something that you were conscious of, just you know, to make sure you had holes that played directly at the ocean, and, and for those reasons at all? Uh, Yes. And I think, you know, that it does a few different things. I mean, from a from a geometry point of view, when you have a hole playing directly at the ocean, you're only using up the width of a golf green, right? Or the width of it, you know, so you're you get a huge amount of bang for the buck because you're not using up a chunk of ocean front, like, say, uh, five or six or 16. Do. So four and 12 get to be oceanfront but they're they're using very little real estate to do it uh that's the planning uh thing from a from an experiential thing i think golfers there are a few things that golfers really really love and i'm i'm a golfer i love to play golf it's it's an endearing passion my wife and i would play golf every day if we could you know what is fun about golf well hitting over things is fun right no matter what it is whether it's a gulch or a lake or hell, even a tree. I mean, hitting a golf ball over something is is a thrill. Uh, and then hitting a golf ball to something dangerous that has an infinity edge seems like fun too. But when there's no support behind it, when there's just this uh, fall off into oblivion, infinity edges are a great look and a fun thing to hit a golf ball at. Uh, and so that's where those playing golf holes directly at the ocean, you get this infinity edge, which is no golfer doesn't think that's fun. Yep. No, I, I, I think the exact same way. That's why maybe, maybe why I love, love four so much, but, and one, one thing that you've also been afforded over the years with, you know, how old, it's kind of crazy to think of how, how old Bandon is now. It's been around for almost quarter of a century, but it has had the opportunity to age well, and you've been able to make some modifications over time. You don't seem too proud to make changes to, to you know, your masterpiece. And what, what are some of those changes? I remember hearing some stories about the old fifth hole had a lot of gorse around it, and it was, you know, very, very difficult. But what are some of the ways that, you know, Bandon has grown up over time, in your view? You know, I, I want to touch on that first point about being too proud. I, I, 
I don't get that. I don't understand why someone would not want to go back and monkey with something you love. I mean, Mackenzie monkeyed with Pasatiempo until he died. You know, Donald Ross monkeyed with Pinehurst number two until he died. I hope I get to monkey with band until I die. And hopefully that's a long time from now. So uh, I don't think there's any shame in monkeying with something that is well loved. I mean, it, it, it's almost the opposite can be true that if I don't get chance to monkey with the golf course I created, maybe it's because it's not loved. Maybe it's because it's not being played or it isn't being successful. You know, that that's not a good story. So I'm happy to be monkeying with most of the courses I've done. I guess where I draw the line is, you know, what goes from monkeying to completely remodeling? You know, I've never had to go in and completely remodel something that I created. Uh, I very rarely had to rebuild greens on golf courses that I've built. Uh, I've made adjustments, but very rarely had to rebuild. You know, if I think about Bandon, I don't know that we've touched a putting surface on a single golf hole at Bandon. I have to think that one through, but I, I don't think we have. Uh, all the monkeying we've done have been at the edges, changing the edges, and the and the edges have been changed. A lot of it has been the weather. The, we redid all the bunkers for the U.S. Amateur, mostly because after 20 plus winters, the bunkers had taken a pounding uh, and been scoured out. Maintenance practices had changed them. A million golfers had gone through them and, and chopped at them. So they were in need of, of a little love. The edges you talk about where we cleared out gorse, uh, I think that playability issue it speaks very much to what i truly believe is the essence of great design which is a hole like five is eminently challenging i don't think anybody would disagree with that but when it had the chunks of gorse in the middle of the fairway and death on every side it was eminently unplayable it was extremely unplayable to an average golfer that can't hit two shots in a row that are good, never mind three. So by thinning some of that stuff out, we give that average guy a chance to quickly find it and quickly put himself back in play. And maybe his buddy's in the same predicament and maybe he can scratch a half out of the hole. And I think that is the essence of golf is to ultimately find it quickly again and maybe you're back in the game. Yeah, and and one thing that uh, I promise we will eventually move on from Bandon, but I'm having such a great time with this is uh, okay. the the bunkering at Bandon and at Lynx courses around the world has has me longing to you know totally reimagining bunkering and golf, and at the same time like pot bunkers with sod faces on inland non heathland courses just looks horribly out of place. But if I'm playing like a traditional American golf course, let's just uh, if I'm just you know let's let's say like Hazeltine or something like that. There's bunkers that frame the fairways, but I, I'm not even thinking of them when I'm teeing off. Like if I hit one offline, my ball might end up there. It might be a good break. It might be a bad one, depending on the lie and what the rough is like, blah, blah, blah. But it's somewhere like Bandon and at similar links courses. It's almost never a good break to end up in a bunker unless it's saving you from going off a cliff or something like that. The bunkers are in your way of the route to the hole and they might be small, but they will also gobble up golf balls. And I'm just thinking there's got to be something that can be done. That's in the middle of those two. I'm wondering if you have any ideas as to what that might be and whether you agree with that. 
yeah, it, it, that's a tough one. You know, I, I, early on when Bandon opened, uh, a, a tour pro who played it uh, spoke to me and he said, you know, I, I didn't like the golf course. I said, oh, why, why not? He goes, well, you know, I, I'm playing great and I kept finding myself in uh, fairway bunkers. And I tried to explain to him, we couldn't have been playing great. And the bunkers are all positioned right next to where you wanted to be. So if you were very slightly offline, you ended up in those bunkers. If you decided to play very defensive golf, you wouldn't have been near any bunkers at any time. And I firmly believe that is the essence of trying to match challenge and playability. Uh, for a golfer who's being aggressive, the bunkering should be positioned to defend against that aggression. It shouldn't be there to uh, punish the, a defensive player. When someone's standing on the tee thinking, I just don't feel confident today, or this hole just kicks me in the butt, I'm going to aim away from the bunkers into the fat part of the fairway where maybe I can make a par or maybe I can get out of here with just a bogey. What is the point of putting that guy in a bunker? You know, he's already trying to avoid uh, danger. He's already giving up the aggressive line. So I try pretty hard to defend golf holes from aggressive play, not defend them against defensive play. What's the point in that? It's a waste of money. Yeah, no, I think that I think that's an interesting conversation that goes all the way up to the top of the game, and that it seems to be that you know players are rewarded for being as aggressive as possible off the tee. And I'm just I, I, the answer isn't centerline bunkers everywhere, but it's I think the answer is definitely wait. There's something right where I want to hit this ball, which I feel a lot of the time at Bandon and at, at good links golf courses. But I, I think the center bunker thing is only true if the center of the fairway is the place to be. I try hard to design holes where the center is often not, uh, almost never. I want you to be playing for edges. You know, edges are what it's all about. You know, think of all the other sports where edges are so important. You know, it's all about the edges. The NFL, they're throwing for the edges. You know, the uh, tennis, you're playing for the edges. So golf should be the same. You should be playing for edges. And the middle is the safe part that you're kind of, that's, that is the def the defensive play, I would like to think. If you're playing a course I designed and you're playing for the middle, you're not trying to make birdie. I want you to play for the edges. And in playing with you, it almost seems like that you need to be the one writing the yardage books for these places. <laughs> you you know the shots that are required for those. I really actually enjoyed Tethero, which we'll get to and we'll see in videos here in the coming weeks. But in part of it, because you were right next to me telling me exactly what shot I needed to hit. But I'm wondering, as we tie it back to Bandit, what was it like watching the best amateurs play your course at the USAM, you know, make some mistakes, hit great shots, hit bad ones? I mean, that, that had to be pretty th uh, pretty thrilling to watch that unfold. Well, first off, you know, I, I've been saying my whole career that uh, the, the ultimate kudos for a golf course architect is USGA events, whether it's the US Amateur, the US Open, the Women's Open. You know, those are the only golf events that are... Uh, truly picked because of the golf course. You know, a tour event is little to do with the golf courses, everything to do with the location and the sponsors and uh, the prize money and et cetera, et cetera. It has very little to do with the quality of the golf course. So the, the fact that a course I've created hosts or doesn't host a PGA Tour event, I don't feel is a, you know, a, a huge endorsement of my 
uh, design chops, uh, whereas a US amateur absolutely is. You know, that that is being selected on the basis of the challenge that golf course is offering the best amateurs on, on planet Earth. So for me, it was a huge deal uh, to have uh, what I would consider a major tournament played on a course, an original course that I dreamt up. So that was fantastic. However, here's a, another controversial statement I would make. I would say when it came down to the quarterfinals and there were eight players left, I'm pretty sure that if you'd have put me on the bag of any of those final eight, <laughs> that guy would have won. I want to hear some examples. What are some things you saw that would have never happened if you were on the bag? Well, First of all, I, I I'm guessing you wouldn't have touched the sand. Well, I wouldn't have touched the sand, that's for sure. <laughs> I definitely would not have touched the sand, so I'd have kept that guy in it. I just think that, you know, they were, none of the caddies in the final eight were abandoned caddies. They had already been, the caddies at Bandon who were on bags had already gone, including, unfortunately, the, the kids who touched the sand. So all of those final eight caddies were not, overly familiar with Bandon. They weren't familiar with the, the weather patterns that happened in the final two days. And they certainly weren't familiar with the pin placements and the best way of attacking them. For instance, 13, final day on 13, the pin was back right corner. All the players, all four players were banging it as hard as they could down the right-hand side of the hole. From the right-hand side of that hole, no matter how hard you hit it, no matter how far down that hole you went, there is absolutely no way on God's green earth to get that ball next to the cup. There was no way. So it didn't matter if you hit three wood off the tee down the right or rape to driver down the right. The next shots were going to be through the green and well away from that pin coming back to the pin. So no one was ever going to win that hole. It was going to get halved unless someone really screwed up. If I'd have been on any of the bags, I'd have given my guy three wood or even an iron and made him hit it hard down the left, not the right. And at that point, he'd have opened up that pin placement. And I'm pretty sure with the skill level these guys have, they could have gotten it close for an eagle putt and they would have won the hole. On 15, how many players kept going for that pin when it was at the back of the green? That If you step off the back of 15 green, do you know how wide it is? Six paces. Now, even the best amateurs on planet Earth trying to hit a rock-hard green in the wind that's only six paces wide, and if you miss, you are staring down the barrel a double bogey. So I would have told any player I was caddying for, forget the pin, just, put, just play for the middle of that green. All you've got to do is put the ball on the green and two-putt, and the worst that can happen is you half the hole. But the chances are you'll win the hole because the other guy is going to try and go for it. And what was it so in, the, court, in the semifinals? Double bogey halved both of the matches or would have had both of the matches? Yeah, exactly. If, he, if any of those players had hit the green and made par, they win the hole. And think of the spot. You're on 15. I mean, there's only three holes left. So it really would have put you in it. It really was a match swinger right there on 15. Great pin placement by the USGA to stick that pin at the back and bad course management by all the players to try and go for it. If they'd have put it to the middle of the green or front of the green, pretty sure any of them would have won the hole. I'll tell you, I mean, again, we played those, those pins the next day. I missed the green left. And with my chip, I had to aim 15 feet right of the hole 
because of exactly what you're talking about. If I had missed it left, it was going down and off the green, and that the area in which I could have stopped it there didn't make any sense to try to hit. So I pitched out well right of the hole and tried to make a 15-footer, uh, but I just remember watching those guys butcher that one and say, hey, I'm not going to fall into this trap right now. Um, yeah, that's, so. that's it. It's all about course management. I mean, if, if ever there's a course that players need to learn about course management, the courses at Bandon are it. And, and I would love to think that Bandon leads the pack uh, in understanding course management, you know, which side of the fairway to go to, how long or short to play those balls, where on the green to miss the ball into, uh, what things to, you know, when you can go for it, when you shouldn't. Uh, there's so much about Bandon that's about course management before you get to a uh, the golfing skill that a player may or may not have. And and that's exactly what I wanted to unpack with you. I know we've been maybe overloading our content lately with too much band and stuff, but like, I think it is relatable at so many different levels or can be an example of things, you know, you know, not everywhere has coastal golf, of course, but kind of a lot of the things we've talked about today can be implemented in other locations and the coastal element to it adds a lot to it, but it doesn't mean that the principles don't apply throughout the rest of golf. But on a somewhat similar note, um, in the course that you know I've been teasing, we're going to talk about, and it's going to be coming up in a couple of weeks, is Tethero. It is not a coastal golf course, but I was—I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, given your affinity for it. But I was surprised at how firm that course played uh, when we were there. But it, it's been a lot of subject of, of some debate in the golf world. So let's start at the beginning of, of Tethero. How you landed that job, what the goal was, and then we can kind of get into how that course has aged and changed over time as well. Well, I, uh, I'd come over here to Bend, Oregon, which, which is where I live and work now and where I am right this second, uh, and loved it. It's a high desert plateau at 4,000 feet. It rains only seven inches a year. Uh, it's the perfect place to grow fescue, which is what Bandon has. Uh, and you can create firm, fast golf courses over here. Uh, and you know, we have 300 days of sunshine. So in the summertime, you're playing golf in shorts and a T-shirt and it's beautiful weather. So I really wanted to live here, really wanted to build a course over here. And in 2004 or five, I, I got uh, approached and asked if I would do so. So Tethero became the course that I created. Uh, most of the courses over here are parkland style. They're, they're lush, they're green. Uh, they have very defined edges between the golf course and the desert. And so I saw an opportunity to kind of turn that on its head and create a golf course that was uh, kind of brown and hard and fast uh, and blurred the edges between the golf and the desert. The, the, the two kind of coexist, uh, overlapping greatly where the, the two are uh, merged together. And so... It was right around, I was building the course in 06, 07. Tiger Woods was uh, at his most dominant, winning absolutely everything. Everyone said golf was too easy and uh, we had to do everything to make golf more challenging. And I thought, you know what, uh, I'm going to see. I, I think at that point I was playing off, you know, like 4.8 or something. So I was at the lowest I'd, I think I'd ever been. So uh, I doubled down and I built a golf course that is tough and it is a very tough golf course uh, it's pretty wide the fairways are very generous the greens are large but it is rock hard so no matter how good you are the ball will not check 
uh, even a wedge into those greens, I think you'll agree, is not going to backspin. It is not, it's going to run somewhere. So you're playing for the front of every green and hoping it bounces in the right spot in order to release. And if you throw a ball directly at pin, you might lose the ball. Yeah, it, it, uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll like, take us there then. Are the stories of how difficult it was slash is, are they exaggerated to any extent or, you know, you told I, us a story? I would say they probably are. You know, I, I think if you're a reasonably good golfer, let's say, if you're, let's say, 12 or less and you can vaguely hit the ball in a straight line, uh, I think you'd play tether and kind of wonder what all the fuss is about. Uh, but if you're at the average golfer that, you know, says he's 15 but actually plays more to a 20 uh, and, you know, can't really break 100 but writes 90 on the card, you know the guy. That's most guys. Uh, then tether is is really difficult. Why is it difficult? The fairways aren't wide, uh, aren't narrow. They're super wide, but they're incredibly hard and tight. So the average goal hits it a little bit fat because he's used to playing a soft, lush golf course. You hit a golf ball fat at tether, and you're going to chunk it right away. So there's just a level of difficulty that exists for the average golfer right away. You have to be able to strike the ball first. You have to be able to pick it. And that requires a, a level of skill that most golfers don't have. Then you add into the fact that the greens are very pitchy. I mean, they're, they are tumbling and moving and running around. And they're rock hard too. So no matter what the yardage is in, into a pin, the first hole, for instance, uh, I'll hit three wood off the tee and I'm say I'm 160 in. Well, 160 is probably a seven iron. I will never hit seven iron into green. I'm going to hit a nine iron because it's going to run 20 yards after it lands, no matter what. So I'm playing for the front part of that green, no matter where the pin is on the green. And I'm trying to play for the bounce that's going to happen next. And then once I'm on the green, if you're in the wrong spot, you can four putt pretty easily. So I think that's why for the average golfer who's trying to break 100, they come to Tethero to play it and it can eat their lunch pretty quick. But for a, a, a single digit golfer, they can come uh, and play it and think, well, the fairways are pretty generous and the greens are huge. I don't know what the fuss is all about. Uh, at least that's my read. Yeah, I was, uh, I guess, pleasantly surprised. Obviously, I'd heard the stories uh, of Tethero, but didn't I didn't know why it was difficult, and I was surprised to see the what the wide fairways because you know looking at the overheads, it's like oh, I could lose a ball here, I could lose a ball here, but I feel like it is very manageable to just play long irons, even for you know a mid handicapper. You don't have to be hitting driver everywhere because the ball is going to roll so much for you and. You're going to want to play a running shot in with your next one. What's the benefit of getting super close to the green and hitting a wedge anyways? So there, it was challenging around the greens. It was challenging to judge how much balls were going to bounce and your bad shots were very punished. But I find that to be, maybe I'm just sicko, but I find that to be a, a fun sort of punishment more than just straight lost balls on every hole. I, I think the key to Tethero uh, is you have to play very smart and probably defensive golf most of the time. So you have to stand on every tee, look to see where the pin is on the green uh, to give you some sense of which side of the fairway you might want to be on, and then consider your options. And very often, just like you're saying, 
there's absolutely no advantage to being aggressive. And so do you really need to hit driver? Would you be better hitting a rescue club down the left side of the fairway and staying out of all the trouble and make sure that you're in play? Uh, and then from that position, not going for the pin, playing a couple of clubs shorter and putting it in the front of the green and letting it roll onto the green to a position where two putt now becomes reasonably doable. Uh, and almost every hole is like that. Uh, I, I've played with a lot of members that tell me how hard it is. Uh, and then I say, OK, you know, let's go play, you know, Wednesday afternoon. And I go out with them and I, I take the driver out of their hand and I hand them a six iron. They're like, well, what are you doing that for? I'm like, well, you hit your six iron good, don't you? And they say, yeah. And I say, well, two six irons will put you on the front of this green. Why are you trying to hit driver edge? The driver, you hit out of play, and then the wedge, you chunk. So let's hit your six iron twice, and we'll get you on the green. So they do it and make two putts, and they think, well, that wasn't near as hard as it's been all year. And so I continue. But unfortunately, there's 400 members. I'm not going to caddy for them all. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I, I felt like we had an unfair advantage. You know, we're hitting shots into, a, a, I forget, maybe it was the third hole or something like that. I remember you telling me I needed to hit – my 190 club, but I needed to hit it 170 because that's the trajectory of the shot that needed to hold that green or to land it short and run up on. And not a lot of people, yeah, not a lot of people are conditioned to play golf that way, though. You know, it's, it's, I feel like maybe your, the challenge that you've laid out is not, is missed by people because they're not willing to think even remotely outside the box. And I'll throw myself in that, in that group too. I think it, Everyone is used to playing golf a certain way, and maybe it's almost that, that someone doesn't understand the challenge that's laid out in front of them. I'm wondering if you feel that way at all. Oh, I totally do. The last time I played Tedro was maybe a month ago. I was playing with my my business partner, Nick Sean, who's a really good golfer. Uh, and we, got, we were with another couple of guys. We got to eight. We were playing a match. Nick and I both hit drivers up the left side of eight. It's an uphill par four. And we were both 140 out. What club do we both hit? We're both single-digit golfers. And we're trying to compete against each other. We both hit six irons from 140. And we put it to four feet, both of us. And we both laughed at each other because we're playing against one another. We both knew the shot was this low-checking shot that we had to punch into that green uphill and into the wind. And the ball needed to stay low climb into the wind and then drop like a stone. Now, from 140, a lot of players would be pulling eight irons and trying to hit this high shot that would never have gotten there. And even if it did, it, the wind would have blown it off course. Uh, it, it, I think that, that that's why Lynx Golf is the true essence of the game, is to think beyond that stock uh, driving range shot uh, that driving range swing that we've been so preconditioned into playing. You know, here's an interesting thought for you. You've played a lot of courses in the British Isles. How many courses did you go to that had a driving range? Hmm. I, I, you know, I've never even, even at Bandon, I know they have one now. I've never even thought of hitting balls there. You know, it's it, it, it's so little about your stock shot or finding a shot and so much about just being creative and and hitting different thing, shots and different swings that you'd ever do that I don't even think about warming up or tuning in my swing before I go play. And that's golf, if you ask me. That's, it is golf. And I, I think if 
people would stop worrying about the perfection of this swing plane path smash factor if they just stood up and thought you know i want to hit this low you know i'll I'll bet you their body would know what to do yep before we move on from tethero can you tell the story about the uh i forget what year it was the club champion and what he what he used off the tee to win it i'm not sure which year that was well, his name is uh, Bobby Grover. He's a friend of mine. He owns uh, a bunch of coffee places uh, here in Oregon and Washington, and he's a really good golfer. He's a he's a really buff guy. You know, he's super strong. So I'm sure he could hit a driver like Bryson, but he won the first club championship and never hit more than a five iron off any tee. And they had the place set up as tough as it could get, but he's a smart golfer and he knew that defensive play would would likely win the the tournament. And sure enough, it did. That I, I love that story. That was it. Kind of changed my way of thinking about the course. And uh, I yeah, I don't know what it was. I, I, my instinct is to be aggressive, but as soon as I saw Tethero, I hit driving iron and four irons off the tee way more often than I normally do. And I I. That sounds like the antithesis of no laying up, but like it is way more. It's fun. It's fun to play golf that way. And there's a reason why I think Tiger Woods always is very activated when he's hitting a lot of long irons off the tee, because I think it's those kind of shots are just what encourages creativity, which I uh, I think we've covered. But where I'm wondering if you can, you know, we had an interesting conversation when we were out at, at Bend with you uh, uh, about the arc of your the, your timeline of your career as an architect, where Tethero fits in that, and you know, kind of what you learned along the way, lessons you learned along the way, and I'm wondering if we could kind of reheat that uh, conversation as best as we can and uh, kind of paint that picture for us. Well, I I guess what I've seen over the last, you know, I'm 52. I started banding when I was 26, so. Half my life is from Bandon till now. Uh, and what I knew when I was creating Bandon was all instinctive. Uh, I was, uh, I am the son of a Scottish greenkeeper. I, I was born and raised literally on a golf course. Uh, my father's friends were all superintendents and club pros. Uh, I, I, I got to play the, the, the best and the worst of Scotland uh, and the golf is a, a every man sport. Everyone plays it. Every kid plays. Every granddad is out there with his kid, with his grandson or granddaughters. I mean, it, it's a very uh, people sport. Uh, it's not an elitist sport at all. And so, for all of these generations and all of these abilities that are playing golf in in Scotland, the golf courses need to be uh, all things to all people. Uh, they need to allow granddad with his beginner, you know, his beginner grandkids to have fun as well as the club champions who are out there uh, trying to shoot in the low 60s. Uh, and how do those courses achieve it? They, they form a perfect balance between challenge and playability. The, the fairways are generally wide. The bunkering is, is generally strategic. Uh, there usually aren't that many bunkers. Uh, the landscape is, re- or the golfing landscape at least, is relatively soft, even though it might be dramatic on the edges. The greens in many cases are at grade. Uh, they're not pushed way up in the air. They, they don't look like uh, Presswick. You know, Presswick is probably an outlier. Royal Dornock is a bit of an outlier because the, the greens are up in the air. And so I knew all of this. And when I built Bandon, they just 
painted out what I instinctively knew without intellectually having broken it down and deconstructed it into a science or a, a formula in any way. So I did that. Uh, and then I immediately got all of these opportunities to build lots of other golf courses. And all these other influences came in from outside. Uh, suddenly, you know, Golf Digest and Golf Magazine and Golf Week and Lynx Magazine, all these, all these journalists were coming to me and asking me and telling me what it is I should be doing. And the the general thing I was hearing was, you know, golf uh, has to be uh, difficult. The the defensive par, the the challenge has to be high. The, the this slope rating thing that I'd never heard of suddenly became a real thing. That this slope rating number had to be up there. The the gin handicap system. You know, everyone's posting a score, and so I. I uh, rightly or wrongly, now wrongly, uh, started to accommodate that. Oh, by the way, uh, the projects I'm doing are trying to sell hundreds of millions of dollars of real estate, and the real estate sales are predicated on magazine uh, articles and buyers that don't even play golf. So the uh, visuals now become extremely important, which I think is part of the reason why you see a lot of golf courses covered in lakes and bunkers. You know, it has more to do with selling houses than it has to do with the playing of the game. So I, I fall into this kind of trap and I build a few courses that that uh, win awards. They rank really highly, but I don't think they really did a good job of finding that balance between challenge and playability the way the courses of my youth had done. Uh, and so a decade ago or more, I, I revisited that and I really thought long and hard about what it was I was about. Uh, did I want to be influenced from outside or did I, did I want to go back to those instincts I had as a young man, uh, to go back to the roots of the game that I'd learned as a kid at my father's side? Uh, and so that's when courses like uh, Gamble Sands and Mammoth Dunes appeared, uh, where I went back to that uh, simple instinct of measuring challenge and playability and allowing them both to coexist on the same course. Uh, I, if I were to knock on Tethero, I would say that it's all challenge and very little playability. And it's something that I see just flipping through your website and looking at pictures of courses, you know, your more recent work, you know, your work maybe in the mid 2000s. The thing that sticks out to me is this severity of greens. And it looks like I feel like and I don't mean again, don't want to put words in your mouth, but I feel like you've come to the realization or you've you've learned or decided that greens don't necessarily need to be especially dramatic to be interesting and challenging to, you know, all skill levels. Is that fair to say? I would say that's fair to say. I mean, I, I, I wonder how I will look back at this in years to come, but we, we, we hold golf courses up as icons, as the model for what we want to create today. And the icons we hold up are Cypress Point, Oakmont, Marion. Um, uh, you know, think of the greens on all those courses. I mean, they're absolutely wild. And you build the state, if you build a golf course for every man today that has greens like Oakmont, they're unplayable. They're just really, really hard. Uh, and I think we've all been doing it. You know, I think Tom Doak's as guilty as I am in building greens that are severe. They may well be 
great courses for great players, but are they great courses for the average guy, the guy that's actually playing, paying the bills and wants to take his extremely valuable free time and enjoy playing them? I think not. And so I'm trying hard to uh, resist the urge to go crazy and build courses that are somewhat simple. I mean, I, I don't want to say boring in any way, but they're they're simple. They're not as complex as Tether is where, you, you know, you need a, a higher degree in math to figure it out. Well, it's, it's so difficult uh, to find, I guess, and draw the line between severe and really engaging. Like I look at a place, I'm not sure if you've ever been to Sweetens Cove in Tennessee, but those greens are severe. But a lot of the slopes in them, I mean, if you go on the wrong side of them, it ju- you're toast. Like you're just totally toast. But if you are in the right-ish spot, you can use slopes to really get to a very accessible pin if you get creative with it. And, you know, even on that course, there's some slopes that I'm like, that's just too much. And there's some that I'm like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And on the same nine holes, it dances between this kind of, uh, you know, almost absurd severity and some of the most entertaining and fun golf I've ever played. So I imagine that it's just something you have to learn over time how to, you know, dance around that line and uh, not, and, you know, have too many holes that end up on that severe, severe part of the scale. I think that there's a truism in golf course architecture that yeah, you, you and your listeners can uh, see how true you think this is. Restraint is a skill that our golf architects learn over time. It doesn't seem to be uh, uh, an asset that is taught intuitively. Every architect of note has built golf courses early in their career with severe greens. Is that a truism? I I would argue that it is. And every architect that's stood the test of time has learned restraint later in their career. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, because it's almost like, you know, you probably broke, had some kind of breakthrough in part due to, you know, creativity that you had on the green. So your next time around, you're not going to want to dial that back. You're going to want to, you know, ramp it up. And and, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's very interesting, I think. I think well said. Um, one place we haven't really talked about the couple times that you've been on is, is Mammoth Dunes, and I haven't had a chance to get up there yet. But you, uh, you, you, you did get to go second on this project instead of being first, uh, like at Bandon Dunes. But what kind of uh, feedback have you gotten about your work up there? Now it's been open, I think, a couple years now. And you know that the feedback I've gotten is uh, very similar to the feedback that I get for Gamble Sands that the. The average player absolutely loves it. Uh, in fact, I mean, I, I'm not, this isn't uh, completely honestly, I, every player that's played uh, those courses, be they uh, exceptionally talented golfers or complete hackers, the feedback almost to an, every single person has been one of joy, that they've really enjoyed playing Mammoth Dunes and wanted to play it over and over again. You know, I, I spoke to... Uh, Luke Reese the other day, who's one of the owners of Juice, the the man, the clothing manufacturer, uh, he's on the golf magazine panel, and and he was saying that, you know, Mammoth Dunes is is one of his absolute favorites, and he he ranks it extremely highly in his you know world's top 100. You know, he feels that it offers him the ability to be as aggressive as he wants to be, but offers him mercy when he's unable to pull those shots off. 
Uh, and I thought that was a wonderful way of explaining it, that, you know, a cor- these courses offer mercy when you screw up. That doesn't mean you're going to make birdie. It just means you don't make double bogey. Well, I want to get you out with, uh, there was one question on Bandon that I, that I missed that I meant to ask you earlier, but I was curious as to what you would rate as, as a underrated hole at Bandon in your view. Gosh, you know, the, the one that people often ask me what my favorite is and my answer is often 14 because I was thinking you were going to say that I had a feeling. (laughs) Yeah. Four, 14, I think is a hole where, uh, People look at the card and they see a relatively short hole. The T site isn't terribly exciting, to be honest, and the fairway's pretty flat. But the positioning of the bunkering, there's uh, the green especially, and the ridge to the right of it, uh, set up for a really interesting angle. You could play that hole so many different ways. You know, you could play that hole aggressively, still only hit a long iron. Or you could play it aggressively with a driver. Uh, it was really interesting to me the the very final round of the U.S. Amateur. Uh, Strafacci went with a driver on 14 and ended up hitting the green. And I knew he would when I was watching it. I knew that the wind had died right down. Uh, the fog was moving in, and he pulled driver. And I thought, oh, this could end up on the green. And he hit the shot, and he had no idea where it was going. And yet on TV, we clearly saw the ball was on the left corner of the green. And that's the shot I would have given him as his caddy, but I would have known he could have put it on the green. Uh, You know, he didn't realize that that was even an option. He was totally surprised. Uh, So uh, 14, I would say, is is probably the sleeper at Bandon Dunes. Yeah, I had a very strong feeling that was going to be your answer, and I'm glad to hear that. And we'll we'll let you out on you know you're a busy man these days. What are what do you currently have uh, have going on, and what can people expect to see in, in the coming months and years? Uh, we're we're really busy. We're uh, we're we're about to finish off a links course on the coast in Portugal called Comporta Dunes, and it is just uh, it really is amazing. Wait till you see some pictures of this. Uh, we have this huge site that's right on the Atlantic coast through huge uh, sugar sand dunes. Uh, so we're, we're going to finish that in the first half of next year. We're doing a couple of, a couple of three remodel projects. We're going to open the uh, short course we built up at Gamble Sands next summer. We're trying to do a course over on the coast in Washington. Uh, we're working through all the permitting on that right now uh, at Westport. Uh, so that could be fun. There's maybe even some talk of another Kaiser project that's through some dunes. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of cool stuff out there on the horizon and stuff that we're uh, working on right now. So golf is, uh, at least for us, uh, we're staying really busy. Great. That's great to hear. Can't wait to check them out. I need to get up to Mammoth, uh, hopefully. Hopefully when things start getting a little bit closer back to normal or something this summer, we got to got to get organized an event of some kind up there but uh thank you david for all the insight you are honestly one of my favorite people to talk golf with and uh i know the listeners are going to greatly enjoy it and uh thanks for all, all your help at during our tourist sauce season and uh for episodes that have come out and ones that are to come so i uh, look forward to chatting with you sometime again soon all right i want to play mammoth with you guys so make sure and invite me we'll definitely do sounds good <laughs> thank you for the time we'll chat soon see ya be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. 
Better than most. Expect anything. 